Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. So with us today, we have a special guest. Jordan Jones will be joining us again. Hi. Because uh, we, we need someone, uh, our resident theologian, <laughs> to discuss some religious aspects. Because you can't really untangle the science and the religion from Kellogg. And that's who we're going to be talking about today. I'm so excited. I absolutely love Kellogg, and I was very disappointed we didn't get to cover him more in our eugenics episode. So this is sort of a eugenics part two, a little less eugenics, a little more odd pseudoscience Eugenics part two, the electric boogaloo. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yeah, it's a really odd bag. It's, it's uh, a lot of odd nutritional stuff, a lot of really interesting historical uh, notes. I mean, Kellogg's hands and, and associations with sort of the most prominent people of the time is, is fascinating. Um, I did as much research up until I got to a point. I, I will share that with you because it was probably the oddest Kellogg fact I came across. Cool. And I was like, yeah, that's enough for me. I don't need to learn any more about Kellogg. <laughs> So I guess we should start off with, with who we're talking about here, uh, and then kind of slowly move through our sort of prepared list of things that we want to say about it. Yes. So John Harvey Kellogg um, was born in 1852. He was one of 10 siblings. Um, his family moved to Battle Creek, Michigan in 1956 to be with the White family and be close to their new church, the Seventh-day Adventists, which is why we brought Jordan along to kind of give us the down low on the Seventh Dayers and who oh, the White family were. Whoa. <laughs> that could be considered pejorative. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> um, so, the Seventh Day Adventists came out of um, a large movement during the late 1800s known as the Restoration Movement and also out of kind of this charismatic movement and prophetic and apocalyptic movement happening in the late 19th and early 20th century of the United States. Was it like the beginning of like where we start to see I guess what we would call today like the megachurch like the big tent revivals and mm -hmm. yes so that this is not the Seventh-day Adventist but this larger umbrella yes um, nearing the 1920s you start seeing electric churches and that's where we get our mega churches oh from. okay um so the seven day adventists came out of specifically a group called the millerites and william miller published publicly uh. in the uh in the in the 30s that jesus would be coming back um sometime between March 1843 and March 1844. Well, this didn't happen. No. <laughs> and it led to what was called the Great Disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this, then these Adventists, which the word Advent means waiting for the arrival of, yeah. decided that this was not, the, the prophecy was not of Jesus' return, but of like the final stage before Jesus comes, where there would be a cleansing, ah. which is where you get all the food stuff from and the eugenics and oh, all boy. that. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so they believe that they this is the last phase where it's their job to cleanse the population <laughs> <laughs> before Jesus comes back. So um, they adhere to all the kosher laws in, that are found in Leviticus. Um, they abstain from alcohol and caffeine, and most sweeteners. Do they also abstain from tobacco? Yes. Okay. They abstain from nicotine as well. So, um, any kind of stimulant or drug, right. um, whether it be a narcotic or stimulus or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, the Kellogg's moved to Battle Creek to be with the White family. So who are the White Okay, family? so, yes. So, um, the Whites are were part of the Millerite movement, and they're the ones who founded the um, Seventh-day Adventist, and that was in, um, oh, um, that was in 1863. Um, and one of the things about the Seventh-day Adventists is that um, 
they believe that spiritual gifts still happen. And so um, most Protestants do not believe that. They believe that spiritual gifts stop, stop the apostles. Ellen G. White was a prophetess, and so she prophesied about the cleansing and about this age of atonement, uh, so to speak. So that's why they do it. And um, so, oh, and so that's why the whites, so the Kellogg's, they were part of the Methodist church before they switched over to the Seventh-day Adventists. So, okay. Um, yeah, when I was doing my reading on the Kellogg's early life, um, they were part of a group of people who convinced the Whites to move the church out to Battle Creek mm-hmm. and move their publishing company out there because they did two different publications. One was called Healthy Living, and the other one was called like Health and like How to Live Life or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and that's what Kellogg, the topic of the Kellogg, uh, John Harvey, that was one of his first positions was after his family moved out to Battle Creek, they started a broom manufacturing company, and then he switched over and was a paper boy, and then he started working and editing on the White's uh, publication. And so, and one of the things that Ellen was quoted saying was that her husband was closer to John Harvey than their actual children, which I thought was interesting. Um, and the other interesting thing that I saw is during this time, um, like you said, the Seventh-day Adventists were apocalyptic, and so the Kelloggs didn't formally educate their children very much, so John Harvey was only in school from ages 9 to 11, um, and then he was pretty much self-taught, quote-unquote, through reading. Pretty much learned how to read and then read his own books there on out and then learned editing and writing his own book publication and then he moved on to be a teacher for a little while and then he along with some of the white children and some of his siblings all went to medical school in New Jersey for a six-month medical course and then he pursued medicine long term um, with the University of Medical School in Ann Arbor and the New York University Medical College to which he took over the Western Health Reform Institute, uh, and then renamed it Battle Creek Medical Surgical Sanitarium, and then he led that until his death in 1943. So that's kind of the overarching plot of John Harvey. That is less interesting than the sanitarium. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to say that, that this gives me sort of two ideas that we need to do. If we want, if we want to do some spicy podcasts in the future. We need one where we just talk about all the great disappointments and Leon Festinger. Because <laughs> I, I love talking about Festinger, for one. Mm-hmm. It's a, the great, you know, predictive study on what happens when, well, the end of the world doesn't happen like you expect it to. Right. But I think talking about the kind of cognitive apocalyptic mindset would be interesting. Because you're like, why wouldn't you teach your kid? Well, I mean, if the world's going to end in 10 years, it's not really worth Right. What what is a high school diploma if uh, right. Jesus is coming back soon? And online, they have an archive of all of Ellen G. White's like letters that she sent and like journal entries and stuff. And she had many breakdowns, psychological breakdowns about the second coming of Jesus Christ and just like self hate about how much of a sinner she was and all of these like Ooh. episodes uh, where she had you know she. she felt called to come to Christ and confess of her sins before he came back. Oh, That's man. Kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, the sanitarium. I guess we'll we'll move on to something slightly more upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of upbeat in this one. No. Just a lot of weird. Yeah, so it, it was originally, so most places like this were originally called sanatoriums. And he does, they do get the honor of creating the word sanitarium, which they defined as a health resort for invalid soldiers and for others. In his words, quote, a change of two letters transformed sanatorium to sanitarium, and a new word was added to the English language. Basically, it was a marketing scheme to make it not sound like the same kind of hospital that it was, but that's exactly what it was. Right. Uh, like you, you mentioned, uh, the, the sanitarium began in 1866. It was managed by Kellogg from 76 to, four, to 1943. 
At its peak, it spanned 30 acres with 30 buildings, and it could hold around 1,300 guests. His brother, W.H. Kellogg, was the bookkeeper. Um, and at its peak, it had roughly seven to 900 people employed. Um, and it could house 400 guests and in in, in had treatment rooms for over 1,000 patients. Oh, wow. At the time. So it was a huge, quote-unquote, health resort for people who needed it. Following the disfellowshipping of Dr. Kellogg, the physician stated that he and his employees were independents who did not belong to any church, and that the sanitarium promoted his theory of biologic living based on Adventist principles. In 1928, a distinct 14-story addition to the main building, the Towers, was constructed. I'm not entirely sure what was going on in the Towers, but just more. I mean, if you're going to call it the Towers, probably something not great. It's, it's got some serious um, Shutter Island vibes. Uh, well, but it's, you know, 13 beautiful acres of land. Um, so, yeah, he, he ran this this sanitarium. Uh, the, the treatment encouraged a low-fat, low-protein diet with an emphasis on whole grains, fiber-rich foods, and most importantly, nuts. Probably some influence in there of why we were supposed to eat like nine servings of bread on the food pyramid uh which turns out it's kind of flipped now <laughs> turns out all the all those um fiber rich foods are good for certain things but um kellogg also recommended a daily intake of fresh air exercise and the importance of hygiene i can't really argue with that 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 seems pretty good um and then but many of the theories were later uh, hypotheses were later published in his book the road to wellness uh, he's got ties with his brother wk kellogg who then goes on to kind of take over the modern day kellogg foundation and the cereal mm -hmm. and cw post yes who went on to create post cereals mm -hmm. that's a whole drama <laughs> So they didn't invent cereal. The Kellogg brothers didn't aren't the first person to invent cereal, but they did create the uh, cornflakes originally as kind of a breakfast food for patients, something that was easy to eat, something that didn't have any sugar in it. Um, you know, per Adventist dietary regulations, of course, and they called it originally granola. But the person who invented granola, James Cale Jackson, filed a lawsuit against them, so they changed the name to Granula. They changed the O to a U. <laughs> and then it became very popular at the sanitarium, and then people who left the sanitarium wanted to continue to eat the cereal. And so they decided to form the uh, Sanitas Toasted Corn Flake Company in 1989, or the... Sanita's Food Company to market Sanita's Toasted Corn Flakes in 1989. Is that 1980 or 1889? 18, 1889. There we go. <laughs> and then the brothers had a little spat because they wanted to, so Will Kellogg wanted to make more money and sell it to a wider American audience, so he wanted to add sugar to it to make it more palatable. Um, John Harvey was a staunch, you know, health food person and said no to the sugar so um will added sugar pretty much took over the company and started kellogg and that is he ran kellogg there on out and there was a dispute between the brothers that lasted the rest of their lives essentially. yeah I, I, I did get the understanding in reading some stuff that that um the the elder kellogg did eventually kind of come around with the idea that well if it makes it more appetizing to some people maybe it'll at least kind of like Put them on the road. I'd rather them eat it with a mm -hmm. little sugar than completely be turned off by it. And then maybe they would eventually like get rid of the sugar altogether, like in their their day to day life. Um, mm. And I, I also learned that not long before his death, he he actually wrote a letter to make amends with his brother. Oh, he tried to to make peace, um, and his secretary withheld the letter because she found that it was beneath him. Oh. like it was uh, he had, he had stepped too too far. It was like, nope, 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 this, this like, degrades you, so we're never going to send this letter off. Oh, and man. so he had actually tried, he'd, like, come to terms with, with, with trying to make amends with his brother. So, 
Mm. Like he definitely, you know, kind of came around and didn't want to have that divide between them. Mm-hmm. At least at some point, but yeah, no. So they had they had fights with the person who invented granola. They had fights between themselves, and then they also had fights with C.W. Post, who was a patient at the sanitarium, who then opened his own sanitarium in Battle Creek called Levita Inn, and began producing grape, nu- grape nuts and Post Toasty's Double Crisp Cornflakes as a direct competitor to the Kellogg's uh, Cornflakes. And so there were lots of cereal wars going on <laughs> in Battle Creek. Jordan mentioned that it, there was like a food gold rush out there mm-hmm. so that's kind of why all of these different foods were coming together the yeah ad, the adventist... yeah I, I didn't read it much more oh right beyond, on beyond that. yeah <laughs> we're gonna call this the adventist cereal wars <laughs> oh lord of ni- the 1900s yeah it's um it, it's interesting the the battle creek sanitarium kind of became a, a pretty wealthy health resort it was not really a place where the less fortunate were going Mm-hmm. You typically needed money to go, and it actually did really well up until about uh, who writes it? Uh, about the nineteen thirty what <laughs> when there was this kind of issue with the economy going on. But they they engaged in a composite method. Um, basically, their their health road to wellness uh, included a number of things: um, health training. So obvious things like like physical exercise, um, but it also included things like you know really strict diets and a lot of different therapies, uh, including uh, electrotherapy, mm-hmm. thermotherapy, so it's the cold air, um, phototherapy. So on one hand, like getting sunlight, but in like colder winter days, they would have like heat lamps and put people into rooms where like lights were basically shining down on them twenty four seven. Um, or, or as long as they needed hydrotherapy was really popular there. Um, and then other, um, other types, uh, the, the, the Wikipedia article basically says to assist with diagnostics and evaluation of therapeutic efficacy, various measures of physiological integrity were utilized to obtain numerous vital coefficients. Uh, it's a really fancy way of saying is they tried to correlate a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. uh, to say, hey, if we, we're we doing all this stuff and the person seems to get better, these are also pretty wealthy people to start with. There's probably not a ton mm-hmm. wrong with them. They're just probably looking for a place to, and hey, man, it feels really good to just get away from all your life stresses, sit outside, do some exercise, eat with, some cornflakes, take a bath, which is why the seven-day Adventist, part of the reason why they disfellowship. Do you want to go further into the disfellowship? Yeah, so what started it was actually not the wealthy, the money part. Um, Kellogg started branching away from Seventh-day Adventist teachings, and he started um, putting in the water um, that God was not this personal being up in the sky looking down on us anymore, but that God was an energy that... um, experience inside of you god is in the trees in the water plants animals but anyways when they built the towers that's part of the thing that made them go under because they couldn't fund it anymore and the seventh day adventist asked him to write a book to fund to get funds back to sell to the public well he's they told him not to put any of these teachings in there well he did anyways and they were like, no, nah, we're not, we're not having this. <laughs> and, uh, and then it just kind of domino effect mm-hmm. and the rest, and they just fell him. Yeah. Went. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff when I was reading up on it, there was a lot of like conflict. So like the Darwin had just come out with the theory of evolution right before this. And so Kellogg was caught between like, I'm a man of science and medicine, but also I'm a religious man, and how do we, like, keep these things harmonious? And so a lot of his work and a lot of his writings were, like, caught between that weird space of trying to balance, like, Jesus and Darwin at the same time. And he tended to fall on the science side more often than the Adventists did not like that. No, because all of the... He sort of... 
to wonder why the food was causing, specifically why the food was causing indigestion. And so the Adventists were like, no, um, we prophesied that it just does. And so you should just trust the prophecy that comes from God oh. and so and not trust science. Because mm-hmm. Kellogg was like, say what you will about him, but he was definitely a man of science and that he wanted to know why he was doing everything that he was doing. And I mean, like like some of the like the people we talk about, especially when we get into the eugenics, there's a couple more things to mention with the sanitarium. That everyone was kind of in, I mean, because that was sort of the best that they knew, or at least that's what was being kind of thrown out there as a sort of predominant thought. And so, yeah, like he's kind of doing his best with what he's got. And I mean, it does show, like, if you're looking at this in terms of his track record, it does show that he's at least going like, but, but why are they getting sick? Why is this a problem? Mm-hmm. Just because, but, but is it like, is it is it just that little bit of sugar we want to add to cornflakes that's gonna really like mess them up, or is there something else going on here? Right. Something I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about the food is that he's credited as one of the inventors of peanut butter. Yeah, because he was obsessed with nut butters of like all sorts, and apparently he was in communication with. George Washington Carver about peanuts and peanut butter use in the health benefits of it too. So that kind of goes into the whole like he was talking to everybody um, at the time. Yeah, he's got um. I mean, just like if you just look at the the list on like Wikipedia, it's very short. But like this is just the tip of the iceberg to some of the people. So Edison, I have a lot I could say about Edison, but we're gonna move on from that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Sarah Ward Conley uh, from Tennessee, who was a mural painter. Amelia Earhart spent time at Battle Creek Sanatorium. Um, Irving Fisher, who's the guy we'll talk about later, who is a, quote, celebrity economist. So he's a celebrity academic. Oh. And later fellow of J.H. Kellogg's Race Betterment Foundation. <laughs> Guess what they promoted? I believe. Um, Irving Fisher is also like one of the co-founders of some of the other like major eugenics mm-hmm. foundations throughout the country. Um, other people like Henry Ford, uh, Richard Halliburton, Warren Harding, Mary Todd Lincoln mm-hmm. spent time there. Didn't J.C. Penney too? I think so. Yeah, J.C. Penney, James Cash Penney. Founder of the J.C. Penney Department Stores, Sojourner Truth, abolitionist, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, uh, Johnny Westmuller, um, the actor athlete, um, and and others. They they also have a note of, of Wayne Wheeler, who is a prohibition advocate. Which, I mean, mm-hmm. I could imagine that if you were big on advocating for prohibition, you're probably all in on Kellogg's uh, Battle Creek Sanitarium. Mm-hmm. But despite all this, it started uh, declining in the Great Depression. It basically killed membership. So money started going down, and you know, if they're building powers and revamping the whole thing, well, it doesn't work well when you know you don't have in, uh, an influx of cash. Uh, but uh, eventually, the U.S. Army, needing a hospital, paid $2.34 million, and they moved in, creating the Percy Jones Army Hospital. The complex was later converted into a federal center and is currently named the Hart Dole Inouye Federal Center. Yeah, what did they do today? Um, while you're looking that up, I did have some information about the weird sex stuff, because these are Victorians after all. Um, kind of in line with Kellogg's balancing between Jesus and Darwin. He was a advocate for sexual abstinence, um, both because he believed that, you know, religiously one shouldn't be having sex before marriage or even possibly during marriage. Um, He and his wife actually had two separate bedrooms and it was rumored that they had not consummated their marriage. Um, And, but they did, even though they didn't have any children of their own, they like fostered like 40 different kids and they adopted seven of them. Um, and some of the foster kids, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, which makes this kind of interesting, is some of the foster kids that they brought in were uh, black. 
And so they cohabitated with black children, which runs counter to some of their uh, political affiliations. Yeah, especially with their views on eugenics. Yes. <laughs> and so that, let's see, they didn't, so one of the arguments was that you shouldn't have sex before marriage. You also shouldn't overly indulge in sex while you're married. I guess he didn't practice sexual activity with his wife while married. Let's see. He was also against masturbation, which I thought was interesting because at the beginning of his life, when he was, you know, earlier on, it was uh, kind of unorthodox for people to be against masturbation. Because there was like a time period in the late Victorian era where masturbation like really like became the public sin. But before that, nobody really cared. And then we're still kind of dealing with the aftermath of that now. Um, so he was a part of that wave of anti-masturbation. He called it death by your own hand. He called it self-abuse. He believed that circumcision without anesthesia was the cure for masturbate for preventing masturbation in boys. So he did it to himself at age thirty-seven. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but wait till, so for boys, it was circumcision. For girls, he believed that you'd put uh, carbolic acid on the clitoris. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, he advocated for tying children's hands in bed at night, putting cages over genitals, and using electroshock therapy on genitals to keep kids from masturbating. In his book, The Lady's Guide to Health and Disease, he says, quote, a uh, cool sits in baths, a cool enema, a spare diet, the application of blisters and other irritants on the sensitive parts of the sexual organs, the removal of the clitoris will prevent masturbation behaviors. Good lord. So, it was rather extreme. Um, a little. A little bit, yeah. But it's pretty par for the course um, when it comes to anti-masturbation efforts of that time period. He may have been a leader in that movement. But I've read some scarier things than Pilhub's prescription. People did some crazy stuff at that time to yeah. prevent masturbation. I hadn't gotten that far um, with his like methods of treatment. They lost me at enemas that involved like a quart of yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds that's, messy. Like that, that like, is a yeast infection waiting to happen. You 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 both you both like consume it like you eat the yogurt and then you also like it's, it's kind of like you know yogurt water from both ends and i was like nope i'm done <laughs> i don't need to learn anything more uh about what kellogg was doing um when i got to and it developed like a machine like pat like patented something to help with that i was mm -hmm. like oh, i'm good well one of the things kind of with that weird and like accurate business with kellogg is that he was one of the first people to jump onto germ theory and that there were organisms in your gut and he was one of the first people to buy into that so it kind of makes sense that he would think to put yogurt in an enema mm -hmm. um yeah, it's to... probiotic yeah <laughs> he was just trying to get culture to the people <laughs> so kellogg is weird a little bit well who's weirder is his protege who i did some digging into his name is William Sadler. He moved to Battle Creek when he was a teenager, and John Harvey was his mentor. He eventually married uh, Kellogg's niece, uh, Lena Celestia Kellogg, in 1897. She was a practicing nurse. Um, she was actually really interesting. I didn't pull up, like, save a bunch of her information, but she was a big women's rights and representation in medicine. Oh, cool. activist at the okay. time um she organized a bunch of women to attend the world's fair in chicago and they pretty much told her she couldn't be a part of it and so she fought back and they're like oh you can be a part of it but you have to pay us like a huge fee because we don't think people are going to be interested in seeing a bunch of women talking about medicine and so to pay for the fee she and her assistants reached out to all of the clothing companies that produced clothes for women in uh, medical context to model all of their clothes for them. And so the companies sent clothes and money for the exhibit for them to be at the World's Fair, which Fantastic. I thought was interesting. Yeah. 
So they were part of the Seventh Day Adventist Church as well up until Kellogg was disfellowshipped. Dismem- oh, dismembered. dismembered. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they left the church as well along with Kellogg voluntarily. Uh, he worked for a little bit under Will Kellogg for a time. Uh, he suggested that they could improve the marketing of the uh, fr- the cornflakes if they did demonstrations and tryouts in uh, grocery stores and department stores. Free samples. Free samples. Uh, he then later went to Moody Bible Institute and got a degree in evangelism and became a pastor. And then in 1910, he traveled to Vienna and he learned psychoanalysis under Freud. Huh. And then uh, after they lost their first child, the Sadlers, both of them, the husband and wife, decided that they wanted to actually go and practice medicine. And so they both moved out to San Francisco to Cooper Medical College, and they both got their medical degrees and opened a joint practice together that focused on children's health and women's health. Oh, cool. um, Because of that miscarriage. And then in the 30s, he started practicing eclectic psychotherapy. So we started taking Jung, Freud, Adler, and Meyer. At some point, we'll talk about the, the most effective approach mm-hmm. to psychotherapy is some sort of eclectic combination. So. Right. So he kind of started, like, jumbling. I mean, obviously, it was easier to do that if you're not in Europe at the time. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sabina Spielheim did not have a good time with that. Mm-hmm. He also believed that for specifically Christian patients, that prayer was a powerful way to incorporate, powerful to incorporate within psychotherapy. But for non-Christians or people who uh, felt compelled to pray out of fear, he did not recommend prayer or religious stuff for them, which I thought was interesting for someone who had a evangelist degree from a Bible college to incorporate within I mean, people who have degrees from... That's true. They're pretty cool. From uh, a seminary. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the best people I've ever had conversations with about, I mean, generally all sorts of things, has like a master's of theology, and it's just, yeah, very open, very reasonable, very... Down to discuss. Yes. Yeah, as opposed to like, no, we're not going to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. So the Sadler's pretty cool. Um, one of the things that they did is they went on tour with uh, the wife's sister and one of her friends. So it was a three-woman, one-man show on uh, the uh, Chicago Tours? Chicago Tours? I don't know how to spell it. Yeah, C-H-A-U-T-A-U-Q-A. <laughs> Let me get a look at this. So we can keep that in there, because that's a hard word. Where is that? Let's... Oh, Chautauqua. Chautauqua? Probably. Probably. I think it's named after Lake in New York. Sounds like it. Um, where the original one was held. But these were essentially early 20th century TED Talks series. And so uh, lecturers, professors, researchers, pastors, politicians, activists, anybody and everybody came to these outdoor venues cool. and attended public lectures and events. And there were some of them that were stationary, like the original one in New York, um, but some of them were traveling, and the Sadlers were part of a traveling group where the four of them talked about medicine and healthy living and stuff like that. So very much uh, redistributing Kellogg's uh, ideology through these early 20th century TED Talks. Then, let's see... Uh, oh, and these talks were also kind of the cornerstone of the progressive movement at the time. So there were a lot of featured speakers discussing populism, temperance, women's suffrage, and child labor laws as well. So that's where a lot of that got stirred up. It, 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 to kind of jump ahead in our, our notes a little bit, it, it boggles me that the people, because I was trying to find some stuff on like, hey, so Kellogg, how are they involved in the progressive movement? And so... You obviously have more than I found because mm-hmm. you found kind of the tangential yeah. side people associated with it. Well, the W.K. Kellogg, the Kellogg, the modern Kellogg Foundation was heavily influenced in supporting a number of what we consider very progressive mm-hmm. stances. And apparently they have been forever, but apparently this is news to a lot of right wing oh. audiences who like obviously don't know this history of mm-hmm. the Kelloggs and what they supported. And are just really angry 
at things that like the frosted the company that makes frosted flakes is trying to tell you what to do with your life and so i'll, I'll, get, <laughs> I'll get this great quote that it's just i i just anyway so the kellogg foundation has long since watered down its main mission the welfare and medical care of children should try my Alex Jones impression with this. Oh my gosh. With donations to trendy left-wing causes, including the racist polemicists of Black Lives Matter and other radical groups promoting open borders with Mexico. What they're really upset about, what they got really upset about like getting involved in this, was at the time, there was a campaign where they were going to put out a cereal and the like profits from that cereal were going to go to anti-bullying campaigns and part of those anti-bullying campaigns were going to be about not bullying LGBTQ plus children. Oh. And so they're really upset that they can't bully children anymore or that other children can't bully children. So I was about to say, the anti-bullying stuff is like the easiest like such stuff for corporations form. to like donate to. Yeah. As soon as you add the gays in. <laughs> yeah, conservative think tanks with names such as Capital Research. Oh. Have a bit of a, I put hate boner in here, um, because it's, they're just, they really don't like the Kellogg Foundation. Modern evangelical groups are super opposed to the pro-LGBTQ stances of the Kellogg Foundation. Today gives money to, its original stance was to lobby and support government to aid welfare and medical aid of children, which modern opponents disagree with in terms of LGBTQ children, and they tie them, I, I seen like like blogs from these these think tanks and stuff saying like they're giving money to george soros so like ah. they're getting into the george soros conspiracies and the quote far left mm. because anti-bullying campaigns are all far left now you're not doing capitalism the right way you need to do it right. like me right. i bet you i bet you that they that kellogg and george soros foundation probably gives to some of the same organizations probably i bet you they do because they probably give it to all of them like my favorite joke after i started teaching at university my grandparents asked me how uh, teaching was going and i was like it's going great haven't received my soros check yet though uh, so uh, still waiting on that <laughs> they didn't find that funny <laughs> <laughs> Um, so there was, you know, positive stuff that kind of came out of the Kellogg involvement. Um, they obviously started the whole, you know, modern day vegetarianism and kind of being conscious about what you're eating and why you're eating and the health relationships with food. Oh yeah, Ellen G. White is considered one of the foremothers of vegetarianism in the United States. Mm-hmm. I believe he also had some uh, inventions regarding medical equipment that was actually fairly legitimate. I remember mm-hmm. seeing one of them that was like heated uh, uh, operating tables. Okay. And I was like, that's nice. That's that's considerate. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, one of the other things, and this is kind of what ties us back around to our previous conversation on eugenics, is he was huge into cleansing the population. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the company he kept was um, Irving Fisher is is an interesting individual. He's noted as being one of the first celebrity economists. Um, But it says his reputation during his lifetime was irreparably harmed by his public statements. (laughs) Right before the Wall Street crash in 1929, he said, the stock market has reached a, quote, permanently high plateau. This is an economist and statistician. Yeah, so I mean, he came up with a, with some stuff. Um, but I mean, some of it we could argue, you know, things like alternative currencies, pretty big now. Mm-hmm. And then he went into Bitcoin. That 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 was part of, you know, he was promoting that or promoting that we need something like that uh, back in in the late twenties to early thirties. Um, but then you get into his other stuff, and uh, it's a little. He was a member of the Skull and Bones. Um, just to add to the conspiracy theory aspect of some of the stuff here. I'm not familiar with the Skull and Bones. The Skull and Bones Society. So the Skull and Bones Society is um, it's an undergraduate senior secret student society at Yale University. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Bush 2 was part of it. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of people who went to Yale, a lot of like 
higher up people. So it's kind of like the Yale version of something like uh, the Bohemian Grove, where you have a lot of these like rich, famous people go to. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you want a really good take on the Bohemian Grove, I'll, I'll link a podcast to it. They'll they'll cover it better than I think we can. And it's enjoyable. I wonder how much booty you have to have to get in. A lot, and what? <laughs> oh, because Skull and Bones pirates. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the Arg. Arg. The, <laughs> the Bohemian Grove is really interesting because not to get on too far of a tangent, but they would actually make uh, people like serve the uh, the current members. So you could have a president who is like putting on plays and performances, or working at a stagehand for these things while they're waiting to get full membership. So, like, they were trying to, like, you had to work to get in, even if you, that, that was at least Marcus' original purpose. Hazing for rich people. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty much what it becomes. Yeah. You have to serve a table. <laughs> no! You have to become an actor. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, he, he's big and, and I don't want to get into his economics too much, but it probably has a lot to do with uh, some of his other views. Yeah, then he gets into the Race Betterment Foundation. It was a eugenics racial hygiene found uh, organization, which is a really nice way of saying we need to like cleanse the the races, yeah, keep everyone separate. Really beautiful. Yeah, because you know it's biblical too. Mm-hmm. Like, which explains why they had black uh, foster children. Because you're supposed to be hospitable to people of other races, but you're not supposed to mix. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, it was um, it, it was founded in 1906 in Battle Creek by Kellogg. Mm-hmm. Uh, due to Kellogg's concerns of what he perceived as race degeneracy. Mm. And, uh, yeah, Wikipedia does not have a link to what race degeneracy means. Huh? It's probably for the best. Um it basically, yeah, they, they had conferences, they had publications, Good Health was, was, was published by them, mm-hmm. and um, they, they really pushed for the eugenics registry with the eugenics record office. Um, it, was, uh, it was created by, it was founded by John Harvey Kellogg, Irving Fisher, and Charles Davenport. And if you're wondering, like, what Charles, like, Charles Davenport looks exactly like you expect him to. I think Irving Fisher looks like kind of like a poor man's... Um, Colonel Sanders. Mm. But Irving Fisher also was a key leader in um, helping to establish the American Eugenics Society. Mm. Which I'm pretty sure we've talked about. Yes, <laughs> we did. Because they're the ones that had the weird publication that yep. went under and then nobody who's written for them or was on their editing board so, mentions it, but they get lots of money from the government. So he's our common thread because he was a huge eugenicist. Uh, and, and again, one of the big, he was the society's first president. Mm-hmm. the first president of the American Eugenics Society, really super buddy-buddy with Kellogg, and probably as a patient there, mm-hmm. probably got along great with Kellogg, you know, chatting about what to do with all these other people that we need to deal with to make race great again. Ah! Um, he was also president of the Eugenics Research Association and member of the Eugenics Registry's Governing Committee. Yeah, and like this was one of these groups that kind of treated it a lot like a like like a conference. I mean, they they had conferences, mm-hmm. um, expositions where they would promote a number of things um, until like World War One like disrupted like the, I think it was the third uh, the third conference there. A fourth Congress or conference was planned, but it was interrupted by the Great Depression, which kind of threw all of this mm-hmm. uh, into turmoil uh, and then world war ii right after and then kellogg passed and so it's hard to be for survival of the richest when you're all poor during the great depression yeah and and really it was um it, it says here that after the war due to the actions of nazi germany and perpetuating the holocaust neither race betterment nor eugenics were like as acceptable concepts in academic discussion that it really made it very difficult so that's why we so on the, the last episode we did on this on, on how things like the american eugenics society rebranded a ton of stuff and then did a complete rebrand in like the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. they, they kind of refocused their their main goals from like really outright overt 
separation of the races to more like sterilization programs and a lot of the other stuff that was going on in like the 40s and really the 50s and 60s and the 70s and then now we find out are going on the 80s and the 90s and there's some new stuff coming out in canada right now mm-hmm. uh, that that they're reporting um that these uh native schools were giving iud's to students as young as 10 to basically keep them from reproducing mm-hmm this ties into Adventist teachings too, not to do with the, not specifically to do with the race, but as far as like mental illness and um, stuff like that, um, because the Seventh Day Adventists believe in something called the Great Controversy, which is the cosmic battle between God and Satan, and that that battle um, shows up on Earth as illness. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like a part of the great fall of Adam illnesses no. that you inherit oh, right. um, are um, a direct co- uh, result of s- the sinful nature of man. Gotcha. And a cleansing. So <laughs> the population for white doilies for Jesus to walk off when he gets here. <laughs> right, right. Makes sense. Makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as a reminder from the previous episode, the Eugenic Society, which produced Eugenics Quarterly, transitioned their name but not their message to the Society for Biodemography and Social Biology. Yeah, which is exactly what you would call eugenic society if you rebranded it. Yes. And 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 I will say that they say on their website that their only their name has changed, that their goals and purposes have not Mm-hmm. And so saying that they are still a eugenic society makes complete sense using their own words. But you can't find their website anymore because it was taken down yeah. um, in July 12, 2016. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. The Battle Creek Food Company was biggest sources of funding for the Race Betterment Foundation. Mm-hmm. There's the Good Health Journal, which might also be why Kellogg isn't endearing. To some of the people because he was an advocate uh, advocator of soy foods you know how people feel about well i don't know it was a controversy a couple years ago mm. turned out to be a non-controversy when everyone was being called a soy boy oh yeah um, it's because of gmos or something no it's because there's this type of estrogen that soy produces it's a plant estrogen yes. it's not the same as oh because it was given they were claiming that was they were guys uh, man boobs it was they uh, were people clamastia well and everything it was basically yeah claiming that it was making men more feminine based on the food they eat. And there are still people who actually claim that today, and they're still on going on rants about how, you know, soy is feminizing the male population. But, you know, people like Zimbardo are saying in other ways. He's saying that, like, people playing video games down in their parents' basement are making them weak, weak, weak men, and that's... Mm. That wasn't his most recent TED Talk. Well, they're going to be very shocked because the I think it's like ninety five percent of soy that's produced in the world goes directly to uh, livestock feeding. Yeah, so we're all eating the soy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. But he was publishing like at, you know advocating for soy foods back in nineteen twenty one. He became increasingly enthusiastic in the nineteen thirties, and there were more articles published in the journal. It also published recipes. For soy acidophilus ice cream Ooh, uh, made from cultured soy milk. Yeah. Acidophilus is acidophilus. Uh, it's um, a gut bacteria that helps people with lactose intolerance. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, Yo- yogurt and soy. You gotta go on the Kellogg diet. And cornflakes. Cornflakes. Without sugar. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, he helped to create the eugenics registry. It was first raised by him during their first National Race Betterment Conference. Beautiful. Yeah, uh, and it was established after the second uh, with cooperation of his foundation and the Eugenics Record of- Records Office. And it was, I'll give you the four purposes. One, to make an inventory and record of the socially important hereditary traits and tendencies of the individual which for them, uh, and for a lot of eugenicists at the time, included everything from poor eyesight to 
more serious things like mental health to things like pauperism. Mm-hmm. If you were poor, that was a hereditary illness. And, you know, if we just sterilize all the poor people, they'll never be poor people. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, to point out as far as possible the conditions under which these traits and tendencies may express themselves in succeeding generations. So, no understanding. World-renowned, like, celebrity economist on their side still can't understand the basic things of, like, you know, wealth, growth, you know, generational wealth and things like that. Mm-hmm. Turns out if you got a bunch of people who have no generational wealth, hey, turns out uh, they're still poor. Um, Amazing. <clears throat> yeah. To contribute to the growth and spread of our knowledge of the natural inheritance in man. So, very Darwinian. And uh, to assist in the maintenance and increase of natural endowments and to combat race decay. Which if, if, if you, you think you know what that, you're probably right on exactly what that is. Um, yeah, and they're pioneering eugenicists. David Starr Jordan, John Harvey Ke- uh, Kellogg, Irving Fisher, of course, Luther Burbank, and Charles Davenport. And Charles Davenport is the director of the Eugenics Records Office. Um, so it's like all the big names came together with Kellogg who had the big money mm-hmm. and they, they funded it. They, they were also associated with those better baby contests that we mentioned. Yeah. The last episodes. The precursor you, to, uh, toddlers and tiaras. Uh, yeah, you can still find like some of these, you know, there are these like posture contests, like old advertisements and reporting and like videos and stuff. Of like posture contests, like and this is even back in like the fifties and sixties, where you know that they would rate people based on their posture and their like how straight they were standing and like these little things that they they attributed to being like a more pure individual, mm. which I mean, it's all white people participating in this too, mm-hmm. yeah. And then they they created the Battle Creek College. Was formed in 1866 as an institution of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Um, predecessors included a training school uh, for nurses, um, the Battle Creek Sanitarium School of Health and Home Economics, which trained dietitians, and the the Normal School for Physical Education. Yeah, Normal Schools. Usually, Normal Schools are for. Oh yeah, they are for education, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. He was pro- so. Kellogg believed in pantheism. That's what it's called. When yes. God is in yes. things. He was teaching that at college, too. Mm. When Seventh-day Adventists went out about it. Probably pretty upset. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one, there's one guy that came from Australia, and he wrote a letter to Ellen G. White. It was like, it, pantheism is running rampant at the Battle Creek College. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the fundamental purposes of this college was, quote, race betterment through eugenics and euthanetics. Euthanetics. Is the primary and essential object of this college, as stated in the Articles of Association. Hence, all students, faculty members, and officers of the college were required to be earnest and enthusiastic supporters and promoters of race betterment principles and methods. The college closed in 1938. (laughs) Uh, Not before graduating. Our dear friend... uh... Shoot, what's his name? William Sadler. That's where he graduated at first, before he went on to Bible college. Yeah, it's, um, Kellogg had his hands in a lot of famous people, you know, famous people's lives. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe literally (laughs) had his hands in a lot of famous people. Um, Doing those yogurt enemas. (laughs) Oh, God. That sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) In every sense. So, I have one more story for us to close out. Because we have another weird connection with Kellogg. Um, I'm going back to our dear friend William Sadler and his uh, psychoanalysis. So, between 1906 and 1911, Sadler uh, began observing a patient who spoke in his sleep, to which he determined was the patient was being possessed by an extraterrestrial. And for several years, William visited the man with a group of five others called the Observers. And in 1925, they found a stack of papers they believed to uh, be written by the man in his sleep through either automatic handwriting or psychography. 
um, where they believed that the aliens had actually possessed his physical body to write up a bunch of papers about the alien mission and the history of the universe and the relationship with God and the future of humanity, etc. What's the over under that the guy wrote them completely lucid, or that Sadler wrote him wrote them himself? Oh, I think Sadler wrote, just wrote them himself. But this was a big deal because he then started hosting Sunday teas for several decades, um, between with thirty to fifty people, and for the first decade they were open to the public, and then they turned into a secret society later where all of the guests of these teas would talk about the information from the sleeping man the week that came out that week, and then they would formulate questions to ask him uh, the following week. And so they had this, you know, relationship with these extraterrestrials that were possessing this man's body through psychoanalytic dream engagements. Thanks, Freud. And then in 1955... The group published all of the writings and the questions and answers into the book of Urantia. And uh, they credited the extraterrestrial beings as the author, but Sadler facilitated the publication. Um, The book is supposed to be the fifth epochal revelation from God. Uh, The Sadlers claim the book is entirely Christian and it's consistent with scientific fact. It defines, uh, it describes the universe, so at the center of the universe is the Isle of Paradise, where God lives. It's surrounded by Havana, which is an eternal universe containing billions of perfect worlds. And around this is seven incomplete and evolutionary super-universes. Urantia is the planet that we as humans live on, on Earth. We are in the super-universe number seven, uh, or Vonton. Um, Urantia is 4.5 billion years old. The story accounts for organic evolution of humans from marine life to primates. Um, the first humans were male and female twins, Andon and Fanta. Uh, while there is... I, I'm, I'm gonna say that while they say it's entirely Christian, you have a lot of Christians upset about <laughs> this book. Well, it reminds me of, like, that com- the Kellogg conflict. Yes. Like, we have to, like, acknowledge both things at the same time. Urantia is considered confused and disordered due to its history of rebellion. Um, and the rebellion, of course, is our choice not to engage in more aggressive eugenics earlier on in our history. <laughs> of course! <laughs> So, uh, according to the Urantia text, a half a million years ago, there were six colored races existing on our planet. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and indigo. Um, And then uh, these fair-skinned, blue-eyed aliens named Adam and Eve came to our planet to upstep the natives. Um, You ever heard any of this, Jordan? Yes. Purify the planet. (laughs) But because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve failed, so our alien visitors failed us. Um, but there's an Adam and Eve for every other world and every other super universe that successfully eugenists out the rainbow people. Um, <laughs> you know, in so, the, in the, uh, oh, what is it called when you... So we decided not to kill everyone and we're the bad guys. Yep, that's why we're degenerating because we didn't... Adam and Eve did not succeed in their eugenics. That's a fair trade. I'll take it. So I wonder if this is where the empath community people get Indigo Child. Oh, Oh, yeah. Them and the starseeds. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder if it's like Indigo Child, you uh, hybrid empath. Yeah. Basically. So I wonder if this is where that originates from. We'll have to look into that. We can talk to our guests next week about that. (gasps) We should. No, two weeks? Two weeks? Two, two weeks. weeks. Two weeks. Two yes. weeks. Two yes. Weeks. Very special guest. Um, so you may be wondering why I'm bringing up the Urantia book. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> um, so the first thing is, is it's not a cult in the sense that they don't recruit. Um, they're not evangelizing. But there is one particular member who is currently the president of the Urantia Society, uh, Mo Siegel who founded with his friends the Celestial Seasonings Tea Company in Colorado. And let me tell you, some Christians drink the crap out of Celestial Seasonings Tea. (laughs) So, the 
Let's see. It's the most celestial of teas, and thanks no, to this book. And there's no caffeine in it. Oh. They do have caffeinated ones now, but majority of them do not. It's a very Kellogg tea. <laughs> in the truest sense. Let's see. So, in 1969, the same year that he founded the Celestial Seasonings Company, Siegel discovered the Urantia book. He was immediately taken in by the ideas, writing in 2006 that, quote, I was not concerned about who had written it or how it had been written because it was so powerful. Later, he admitted <laughs> Later, he admitted the book's ideas, quote, were the inspiration for the uplifting quotes we print on the sides of our tea boxes and on our tea bag tags. As a former employee told Gillard, quote, the Urantia book was a guide for making sure of the moral values that underlie the company at the time. Siegel left the company in 2002. But he remained into Urantia. Eventually, Siegel became the president of the Urantia Foundation, a title still he still holds today. So we get from our apocalyptic Christian origins to the Seventh-day Adventists to the Book of Urantia. This is kind of the time the the family tree of our celestial seasonings. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild, and it's it's all intertwined in. Freudian psychology and evolution, evolution and, and eugenics and capitalism. <laughs> I've toured the Celestial Seasonings factory. Yeah, in Boulder, Colorado. So you can imagine my shock when he told me this. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, oh, they offer you a very surreal experience by they have all the mint enclosed in a special room, and they open it up and let you walk in. It's just like a blast of mint. Ooh. It's very magical. I mean, I guess it it puts all of that in a new context. Like, it makes sense, maybe? Oh, yeah, because the area that where it is, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very pristine. Matt, that's exactly what you'd expect out of Boulder, Colorado, if you know anything <laughs> about Boulder, Colorado. Cool. So, yeah, I'm going to link, um, I'll link uh, two videos for this one if, if, if you really want to delve into more into secret societies much like the skull and crossbones i'll link the chilluminati yes. podcast on the bohemian grove and then i'll also link illuminati uh who did a whole episode on celestial tea yes and the book of urantia so yeah those are both really good um both illuminati-esque names uh which are great so yeah that's a wild ride um so I, I guess I'll have to end this off. Like, yeah. should, we, should we move on to our concluding part of the podcast? Our, our bias of the week? Huzzah! Bias of the week! Our bias of the week, if we're talking about yeah, the Celestial Tea Company, Book of Urantia, Eugenics Movement, Kellogg's, Battle Creek Sanitarium. We're going to do the bandwagon effect. Huzzah! <laughs> So it's the tendency to do or believe things because many other people do or believe the same. Uh, which I think is very fitting if we're talking about the eugenics movement again. Um, especially because it had so so many prominent individuals, so many wealthy individuals helping to promote it. Uh, it made it just much easier for something like that to spread and to continue to spread. I mean, arguably we're still dealing with the aftermaths and the current iterations of what we would say is the modern eugenics movement uh today which which have its roots in a lot of the very sane mindsets from the 1920s that are still being seen in a lot of the people promoting at least eugenicist ideas Mm -hmm. uh today yeah because we talked a little bit about uh food scarcity and how we're you know the planet can't sustain so many humans is a eugenics fallacy last time we talked about eugenics because we waste so much food that we could feed everybody if we wanted to. Yeah, it's more about a distribution uh, scarcity is what we're really kind of dealing with, mm-hmm. is, is that issue. But yeah, that if, if we found a better way to transport food from country to country or to places in need as opposed to maybe places with less profit, we'd probably have a lot more to go around. Mm-hmm. But that's that's probably a topic for another day. Yes. <laughs> So, I don't know, la- any last thoughts on Kellogg, um, the whole situation? I mean, we could probably, again, I'd, I'd love to do an episode in the future on cognitive dissonance. Maybe we need to we need, we need to worm that in to, to the next season. We need to talk about cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and Festinger 
and the slew of great disappointments. I love that name now. Yeah, no, there's some major cognitive dissonance happening with like Seven Day Adventist who believe that you know illness was caught by sin from the time mother was in a wheelchair and was not a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but also you have like, I mean, you, you look at that idea where so the world's going to end in ten years. I mean, we see the same thing happen with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses change their entire like amount of people that needed to be in the church. They hit that number, and then they were like. Well, Jesus isn't here. Uh, oh, 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 it's 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 more than that. It's ten times that. It's it's a higher number now. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you cope with that? Um, and so this this gives me a lot of thoughts on some future ideas. No, absolutely. Um, honestly, going through all the Kellogg stuff, I thought that we could probably do an entire season of just about Kellogg. There's just so much. Like, we just barely scratched the surface. And we've been at this for a hot minute. Yeah, yeah, him, the people he was involved with. And yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated to go back into a deeper dive and, and evolve all the, or avoid all of the yogurt stuff and, <laughs> and move into, like, how his ideas evolved and, and how he kind of, like, dealt with that balance between, you know, keeping, you know, kind of the Adventist ideas with the scientific ideas and, and trying to... Maybe I'll have to finally go read like the book. Of, I don't want to read the book of Urantia. I really don't want to. Um, <laughs> we better not let Gwyneth Paltrow get a hold of any of this. Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Is she a modern day Kellogg? Like, can uh, we say like she yeah, might be? No, there, she has her goop. She does have her goop. Yeah, she she has her keggles. She has her keggles. Yep. All right. So now now <laughs> we're gonna be. You know, disavowed by the Seventh Day Adventists and Gwyneth Paltrow, um, we should probably say goodbye. Yes. So, um, yeah. Before you hit no. in, I don't know if you already did. No. Um, I didn't say why Seventh Day Adventists. I'm calling it anyway. Oh. I'll say it. So okay. I can go plug it in. Okay. At the other part. No, we'll, we'll save it for the end. It'll be a little, oh, little, a little tag. Yeah, okay. a little tag. Seventh Day Adventists um, uphold the Sabbath just like Jews do. And so from sunset Friday to sunset uh, Saturday, that is their holy day. And so that's when they meet and have church is on Saturday, not like Sunday or the rest. Um, and some other quirky things that they believe in is that when you die, your consciousness is shut off until Jesus comes back. So like most Protestants and Catholics, like if you go to paradise, if you're a good Christian, and you go to like pre-heaven, um, but they believe you don't you don't experience consciousness at all when you die, and then and it's because of that Adventist part because they're waiting for Jesus oh, to come okay. back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I can get behind a day off. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I guess on that note, thank you so much for coming back, yeah. on Jordan. You're welcome. I'm sure at some point we'll talk about religion again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, have you one? No. Looking forward to it. All right, I guess with that, uh, goodbye, everyone. Bye.